Hi, everyone. I'm Aviva Rumani, and welcome to episode 25 of Kindred Cast, Lion Tree's bi-weekly podcast featuring insights from dealmakers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. Today, we're honored to present a rare conversation between Tim Armstrong, the CEO of Oath, and one of the biggest names in the media business, and Lion Tree CEO Arye Borkoff. In his capacity at the Verizon-owned company, Tim oversees 50-plus properties that reach over 1 billion consumers, including media brands such as Yahoo, AOL, HuffPost, TechCrunch, Riot, Makers, Tumblr, and an array of ad tech and distribution platforms. Prior to that, Tim served as the chairman and CEO of AOL after spending a decade at Google, where he served as the president of the Americas. Fittingly, we record this convo from our conference room named Hanks, named after Tom Hanks, who starred in the movie You've Got Mail. And the interview covers everything from Tim's beginnings as a newspaper publisher, his vision for the stable of assets he oversees, and how he and Arya each discovered their own personal oaths. Enjoy. It is a pleasure to have with me today my dear friend Tim Armstrong, the CEO of Verizon-owned Oath, a global digital and mobile company that reaches over 1 billion consumers on behalf of the world's leading global brands. Tim oversees more than 50-plus companies within the Verizon Oath umbrella, including Yahoo, AOL, HuffPo, TechCrunch, Makers, Riot, and Tumblr. Prior to his role as chairman and CEO of AOL, Tim spent a decade at Google, His start in the media business was early when he co-founded a newspaper in Boston and then started auditing classes at MIT, where my father went to school, where he became fascinated with technology. It was his friend Omid Kurdistani, now the executive chairman of Twitter, then Google's sales and operating chief, who convinced him to fly to California and meet Sergey Brin and Larry Page, who offered him a job as U.S. sales chief. The rest is history, as they say. So let's get into it and hear directly from Tim and now he's made himself into one of the biggest names in media. That's you, Arya. No, that's you. When I say that Tim's a dear friend, it didn't happen organically or just spontaneously. It happened because of another dear friend of both of ours, uh, Desiree Gruber. She introduced us, I think. Yeah, Desiree is, you know her as well as I do, and, and you know her husband, uh, Kyle. Desiree's a connector, and when she connects you to people, it's generally somebody, she understands how those people are going to add value. And I think when she connected us, there was a real powerful connection between you and I in terms of the love we have for the media landscape and and those things. What is your oath, by the way? My oath is never give up. I've learned that over the years, but the oath I like to say to other folks is live your oath. Whatever you want to accomplish in life, make sure you know what it is and do it. I like that. You know what my oath is? What's your oath? I think you do know. What is your oath? Jump the rope? That's right. And how did you get that oath? <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> it's when we were both in... Uh, Sounds so uh, shishi, but we were both in Cannes yeah. at a conference, yep. working very hard at the advertising conference, where I think you rolled out Oath as a brand. Yes. I like to think that I've always had this Oath a motto in my head for my whole career, jump the rope. You know, it's kind of uh, stuck with me forever. Isn't that how it went down? No, no. We, we had to get it out of your head. You came to a meeting that we had in Cannes, and everyone was doing their oaths, and you were standing in front of the whiteboard with a magic marker, but you couldn't write it. I said, Aria, what's your oath? And you said... I don't know. I don't, I don't know. And then you left. So I ran into you that night at the media link, Michael Kasson's party. You came up like the house was on fire and said, I got to talk to you. I got to talk to you. And I thought you were working on some kind of deal. And so he pulls me aside and he said, Hey, hey I know what my oath is. And I said, what is it? You go, 
jump the rope. And, and then you proceed. Go ahead. Tell, you, can, you can tell the story. Well, but uh, you, that, uh, that's because I had one hour as a break before the uh, event started. And I decided to just to go to first swim. I went down to the water. There's obviously the sea. So it's a choppy water. And I saw no one was there. No one was swimming. Usually it's pretty active. And there was a rope. And I started to climb it. And someone said, hey, you, you can't do that. It's very rough waters today. Do not go in there. I thought to myself, I think I can make it. <laughs> well, first you thought it was a VIP rope, which well, exactly. is what attracts you. Exactly. So that was the, uh... Yeah, exactly. So I said, <laughs> I'm going to jump the rope. Yeah. And then I was like, I jumped the rope and I went to the water. I'd stay there for like 15 minutes just so that I could do it. So yes. I also didn't like get washed away. <laughs> and I came back and the rest of the night I thought, that's a great motif. Jump the rope. Yep. You know, when you have a rope in front of you. You can let the boundary dictate it, or you could uh, jump the rope. That's, why, that's why it's important to have an oath. Yeah. So I went into your booth the next day, and you said, okay, before we have meetings, I'm asking everyone to put their oath on the board here. And I didn't hesitate. Walk right up, and I wrote, jump. It had to be three words. Jump the rope. Yep. And you're like, I love it. Have you been living your oath? Yeah. You have been. I, I have been. Yeah. What's the latest rope you've jumped? Getting you to do this podcast. No, that's not a rope. <laughs> <laughs> the rope I've jumped? You know, I feel like I take risk every day. It actually goes to where your philosophies on your career, as you talked about, because I'm always leaving myself a bit at risk to learn about things. And I think in any one of those situations, you're jumping the rope, right? Because you're going from where you're comfortable and constrained and conventional to an area that is uh, unforeseen. And that is the career path that you're talking about. You have been taking risks and more and more risk as you go. One of the philosophies someone told me about risk is, if you take more risks, especially the older you get, people take less risks generally. Do you feel like you're getting more comfortable taking more risks like uh, overall? Or are you at the same pace you were five years ago? Or you, how would you assess I, your risk taking? It depends on the size of the risk or the consequences of the risk, right? There are little things you do every single day very comfortably. Those are just incremental. But I think big risks like launching a new product for us, for example, would be a, a big risk or making a big hire or uh, making a career change for people. I think I do those every three to five years comfortably, yep. the big risk. You know, I've always moved in my career from fixed income to equities to banking to management and then starting a business. And those have happened actually around every five years or so, but staying with the same industry, staying with the same people. So I try to lock uh, a non-risky thing that you can uh, still benefit from and learn from over yep. time in a cumulative way while you're taking risk on the other side. I think that gives you a bit more comfort level to take risk. The more comfort you have when you can take a risk, the better off you'll be because you'll stretch yourself a little further than you would otherwise be and hopefully get better returns. How about you? I think I, in general, try to do the same thing, put myself at the edge of what I'm comfortable with in terms of learning, growing, taking risks. And I think over time, I, I've seen this as the older I've gotten, you know, you get smarter about it overall. But I think also the, with cases where you don't keep pushing yourself, I think that risks start to look bigger if you don't keep trying to push yourself forward. So I think what you just said about every once in a while taking a bigger risk, but then taking micro risks every day, it's almost like working out. You got to yeah. keep your risk muscle going. How does a guy who was really more of a humanitarian or humanities guy, a liberal arts guy, really, yeah, you were studying sociology, some economics, et cetera, get into you know, one of the biggest tech companies in the world at Google, how'd that happen? 
a lot of it has to do with a phrase I like to use is uh, nobody's perfect, but you can know yourself perfectly. Fortunately for me, both growing up, but then after I got out of college, I kind of sort of very quickly realized what my skill sets were, what I was passionate about. And I think I started taking a lot of risks when I was in my youth, like trying businesses and starting things. And so by the time I got out of college, I was sort of aware of the fact that my path may not be a normal path. And I had a unbelievably great time at Connecticut College overall and learned a lot from a school and sports, athletics, student government. I did all that stuff. But when I got out of college, my initial reaction was to go into banking. And the first job I actually had out of college was teaching a summer program at Wellesley College for the summer. Then I went to go work at a bank in Boston. And after like three or four months, there was a guy sitting next to me who was awesome at our job. Like him and I were the same age. And he was 10 times better than I was at the job we were doing. And watching him every day, I realized, I'm like, if I'm going to compete against this guy for the future of whatever the jobs are in the future here, I wouldn't promote me. I'd promote the guy next to me. So I said, I I must have a different pathway in life. So I early on kind of realized my skill set was much more on probably the creative side than it was on uh, any other side. So I, I started taking risks in that direction. And I think that's what eventually led me to where I am today. But you were at Google and you were running the sales force in the U.S. effectively. Yep. You were there at the very early stages yep. of Google. So tell us about that experience and how did you create the sales force? How did you define the culture? How did you direct the sales force? Uh, yeah, well, I, I think one is, uh, you know, Google, even back then at the really early days, the first office outside of Mountain View, California, was my apartment on 86 in Columbus. And so... We were literally in New York, at least, and around the world for kind of thinking about getting into advertising. At the time, Google was very heavy licensing. I think there was 6 or $7 million from tech licensing. But then Yahoo bought uh, GoTo and Inktomi and started giving away search for free. So that Google's revenue model basically changed, and ads were the only thing that we had kind of teed up. So the early days were very driven around the technology around search, the user experience around search, the depth of the index, those things. But the minute that the business model had a flip to advertising, which was fortuitous that Ink to Me and GoTo ended up at Yahoo because Google could have ended up being a licensing company with a little bit of ad revenue. Instead, it made the whole company kind of pivot towards ads as the business model. So going from kind of the one bedroom apartment, 86 in Columbus and working with Omid and Larry and Sergey and all those folks, the company started to get more serious about advertising really quickly. And Larry and Sergey, to their credit, were incredibly visionary focused uh, in general. So I think from a building the company standpoint, looking at Google today, back then there was a, you know, 50, 100 people. Most of them were really young. I was in my 20s. Those guys were in their 20s. We didn't know a lot, but I think not knowing a lot was actually super. You had a very strong vision and people generally didn't know a lot about where things were going to go. So we just spent our time figuring things out, figure it out, figure it out, figure it out. And that I would say of any of the secret sauce at Google was the unbelievable early culture of figuring things out constantly every day and being curious and learning and and really strong vision by Larry and Sergey. I mean, exceptional visionaries. It was problem solving and figuring out the puzzle pieces. Yeah, on a pretty constant basis. There's tons of funny stories about the ad business back in those days. I started getting insertion orders. Like right when I started, I knew a lot of the media buyers. So I like went in, talked them into Google right away and we started getting orders. And in those days you had to have a fax machine. So I called Mountain View and said, hey, by the way, we're making money. There's orders coming in. Uh, I need a fax machine. <laughs> Larry and Sergey were like, prove it. 
I said, what do you mean prove it? They're like, we're not buying a fax machine until you prove you actually have the order. So I'm like, well, I need the fax machine to prove I have the order. So there was a multiple uh, hour standoff about whether or not we were going to buy a fax machine or not to, to get the orders in. But also great testament to their focus on the frugality of the business, the focus, you know, those things. And everything in those days was figuring out how the ad units looked, how they worked, what customers we had. You know, we tried tons of crazy stuff. There was a lot of smart people there. It was a solar common guard. Susan Wojcicki, you know, all the people you're friends with, as well as some really, really talented engineers and, and Omid. And it was a very, very fun, very interesting, very challenging. Google is not an out-of-the-box success. It took a few years to kind of really figure out what we're doing, but uh, but a lot of energy. Not too long, though. Well, not <laughs> last, too long. Last 10 it, years it, or so. Yeah, it's been yeah it took two nice or run. three years. Fundamentally, you were not an engineer or are not an engineer, and you were at an engineering-focused tech company. And that could have been limiting, which is effectively was what Jeff Bukas's pitch was to you when he came and found you to be CEO of AOL. The only quasi difference was I, when I had my newspaper in Boston, I started, and even before that, I, I coded the entrance software for a uh, healthcare company in Boston, and I knew how to code a little bit, so I knew the basics. And then when I had the newspaper, we actually sold our car, I sold my bike, my surfboard, and we bought a Quadra 650 computer and had to learn how to basically program. There was things like PageMaker and other things, but we had a custom application for our newspaper, so we ended up having to learn how to code that. So I was an engineer, I knew how to code a little bit. So when I got to Google, it wasn't like I was a media person who didn't understand business or technology. I was a quasi business person for running my own business, little bit of technology knowledge to be not, not even dangerous, but knew a little bit of it, but also knew the power of how having built a newspaper software of once you can build software, it's replicable. And then you can just dump information on top of it over and over again, ads or content, whatever. That's what we're trying to do with the newspaper. It was a big win. And I think from that time period, it almost in a very fortuitous way, the work I did early on in content in the newspaper and, and some of the tech stuff, we were, we were trying to put our newspaper online when you fast forward all the way to the Google experience, I had a couple experiences in between that, but a lot of them were tech, how tech was colliding with content. And I think till this day, if I hadn't had those early experiences, if I didn't do the newspaper, there's no way I'd be here now. And by the way, there's no way I would have gotten hired at Google because I think my understanding of the tech landscape over those years mattered a lot. Being early in the industry mattered a lot too. I think when you look around different industries, one of the things you'll notice when people tell their stories, and many cases they're super early. You know, they were in high school or college or they got an internship someplace that nobody else had or they did things like that. Almost all the people I know in our industry who are senior and been successful, they have some kind of super early start mm-hmm. uh, at things. And I, that's a little bit what I had, but wasn't a plan. It just happened. But still to extract you from Google to go to AOL. I mean, how was that happen? What was compelling about that? Well, one is at Google at the time period for what I was doing after being there for almost 10 years, my learning curve was starting to plateau. plateau. And I have a personal philosophy on careers and stuff, which is Basically, I constantly try to put myself in the area I'm going to learn the most, not where I'm going to make the most money or have the biggest job or those things is where are you going to learn the most? Because I found that like a lot of success comes from just the pure act of learning. And I think that when Jeff came to me at the time period, I was sort of plateauing out at Google. And two is 
at that time period, I was spending a lot of time with Facebook, a lot of time with Google, a lot of time with the tech companies in Silicon Valley. And one of the things I noticed was that all of them basically didn't have the content gene. I split my time between New York and Silicon Valley and LA and some international places, but I had a general suspicion the future of content and technology would become so closely linked together and the Silicon Valley companies would have a really hard time thinking about investing in content, wanting to go into content. And in many cases, their models wouldn't support it actually because of the margins and how they were structured. So it looked like to me, AOL was the single largest internet company that everyone had kicked to the curve. It had tons of revenue. It had a lot of customers, had a lot of consumers. And basically, if you were going to try to build a content company from scratch, it'd be much better to go to an AOL or Time Warner and do it than it would be to go do a startup. And when I was at Google, I started another company with my roommate from college called Associated Content, which we ended up selling to Yahoo. So I had been paying very close attention to the content space. And when Jeff called, I went to go see Jeff, by the way, thinking it was a meeting about the relationship with Google. Mm-hmm. And when I got to the room, he said it. I called uh, my wife and a friend of mine on the way home from the meeting. And I said, you know what? This struck a chord with me. I think this is the opportunity that may be the most interesting, maybe what the year, most challenging. What year was that? 2009. 2009. Yeah. That nature of content, not understanding, or Silicon Valley technology companies, not understanding content that you try to capitalize on. Has that been reconciled and fixed? In Silicon Valley? Yeah. No, I don't think it has. I think they're doing a much better job at it overall. I was just out in LA with Bryn Moser from Riot. We had a dinner with a lot of content people, super, super guy, super talented. We had a dinner with a lot of content people, heads of the studios, some actors and actresses, some of the new content models uh, that are happening. And while I was at the dinner, I was thinking to myself, I'm like, if I took this dinner right now and took the conversation at the dinner and I moved it to Silicon Valley, and I took all my friends in Silicon Valley and put them at the table, there would be a 50% overlap in viewpoint, and there would be a 50% non-overlap in viewpoint. 15 years ago, it would have been a 1% overlap. So Silicon Valley is catching up. But I still think there is a very, very significant and ever-changing and going to continue to change opportunity for content and technology to come together. Silicon Valley companies are going to pursue it. We're a Silicon Valley company. We always have been. AOL has offices there. Yahoo's got a big office. But there's a really big opportunity there overall. And I'm more excited about it now than when I left in 2009. And we have a lot of work to do, but it's exciting. But what is it that the technology platforms don't understand? How do you get from 50% to 100%? There's probably two simple components to it. One component is over a long period of time, how do you meet the basic needs of a consumer without undermining the consumer. And from a use of time standpoint, time is the most important thing that consumers have in the world. It's the most valuable thing. If you look at the content that gets consumed today, how it's programmed, where it goes, we have this issue at our company too, is are we providing the absolute highest quality, highest value use of time for the consumers right now? I'd say the answer is no. So I think there's an opportunity on the consumer side. The second opportunity is on the creator side. If you look at how content gets created today, a huge amount of the world's most creative people are still trapped. I say trapped. They'd probably say I'm loving it. But in non-digital areas where they could have a much bigger audience, much bigger influence, much better business models. And I, I think that we're still in the early first inning, both on the consumer side and on the content side. So I, that's what I see. I, I think, again, Silicon Valley's catching up. 
LA's catching up, London, Tokyo, you know, all the places around the world are really focused on this, but it's a really significant opportunity still. How about the concept of brands? Because that's a critical part of the media yeah. industry, right? And yeah. understanding and appreciating brands, the affinity yeah. that consumers have towards the brands that they yeah. uh, consume. I think that that may also be uh, in development or lacking it's huge. in Silicon Valley. Right? Well, I'll give you an example. The mission statement of our company is build brands people love. And sometimes when we say that, people say, I don't understand what that means. And I always say, thank God, because if you did, you'd be in our space. But the word brand, if you look at even like, I'll give you an example. Google News just redid Google News. And what did they do? They went to fewer brands. They put the brand logos now in the news stories, which they weren't doing before in general. So if you had gone back three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years ago, some of the companies in Silicon Valley would say, consumers don't care about brands. It's UGC or high quality. They just want everything mixed you know, together. If you go through and look at how they actually behave after they say those things, Google does the great panda release, puts brands further up in the index. Facebook comes out and says, we're going to have more high quality brand content. Google redoes Google News. Apple starts investing in high quality content. Amazon goes from no content to super high quality content and brands and builds brands. So I, if you look at the average consumer that download 30 to 40 apps, they only use three to seven apps and they have more on their phone. Most people can't name all the apps on their phone. They need brands to help curate the world. And, and I think in the content space, brands are ultra important. So for Verizon and for your area of focus, what are the key brands that you're trying to build that you're focusing on? How do you think about the Oath brand versus the underlying brand underneath yeah. that? So I'm going to tell you one thing. Oath is the underlying brand underneath. Mm -hmm. Our consumer brands stand on the outside of the company. They're the mega brands we support and get behind. And when you think about our strategy, it's new sports, entertainment, finance, and it's having a deep relationship with the consumer. So I'd say the relationship with the consumer is as important as the categories or brands that we're in. So if you look at a Yahoo Finance, Yahoo Finance might be the most important financial brand other than Bloomberg at mass scale in the financial industry. Um, overall, it's a huge asset. Yahoo Sports, huge asset. Huffington Post, huge global asset in news. And if you go down that tech crunch, arguably the best tech brand in Silicon Valley and really globally that people watch for Silicon Valley, our strategy is to basically with Verizon, number one, let's take a big step back. Verizon plus Oath is one of the largest mobile companies on the planet. If I said the mobile internet's going to double in the next four or five years, mobile is the most important consumer trend in almost every industry. And you have the highest quality network and consumer base in the number one economy in Verizon. And you have one of the largest set of content brands in the world combined. And I told you the valuation of those businesses that got put together were $10 billion. And the next largest company our size is worth $400 billion. You'd say, wow, there might be a lot of room for value growth here overall. So that, that's the Verizon story. It's great mobile, great brands, undervalued assets that our job is to turn into value. Give us a progress report on how the merger of AOL and Yahoo has been going so far. Has that been a successful deal for Verizon? Yeah, so we had a super successful initial first six months, over-delivered on plan, over-delivered on the synergies, over-delivered on the financials. It was very successful. The process we're in right now, which I think will be successful, is going from transition and integration into growth. So now we're changing the company, the executive culture, the company culture, and all those areas to basically focus on put the consumer at the middle 
innovate the content model, innovate the ads model, innovate the communications model, and grow as fast as we possibly can. And I think this is going to be the fun period because the integration period was tough. We over-delivered. I said to the team, I said, I've never seen a team in six months get more done any time in my career, any place I've been than the combination of the Oath, the Yahoo AOL teams with Verizon. And I was, I, I would say highlight for, for me personally, watching a group of people work, that's six months. We have to reset our minds now to say for the next six months, six years, 16 years, 60 years, how do we serve consumers and grow really, really quickly? That's our job. And the first six months of this year, we're still working some of the integration things, some of the systems. But I think in the second half of 18, you're going to see us like really have the gas pedal down. How important are these assets to Verizon and their overall media strategy? If you go five, 10 years in the future from today, it's important for Verizon. Verizon is doing an amazing job at 5G right now. So if you think about 5G as a new medium, which it will be because of the speed of the connection, speed of the devices. On top of that, what is the thing that people are going to consume the most and want to be involved with the most? Media is one of them. Communication services is one. So I think for Verizon, it's a critical piece. Oath is a very critical piece. It's also critical because Oath opens up the world to Verizon. Verizon is not a closed network anymore with the Oath model. We're able to bring Oath to other carriers, other OEMs, other partners. So for Verizon, Oath is not just a play on the direct benefit for Verizon consumers. It's a big play for the Verizon ecosystem. And we've done a great job with Verizon, connected with other Verizon partners, other Oath partners, and bringing Oath or Verizon or vice versa to each other. And I think that's been a big success in the deal. And uh, there's a lot of work to still do, but uh, I'm bullish on where we are right now. And do you think that we'll see more integration between within Verizon, the Oath properties and Go90 and other parts of the business? Yeah, I think right now when we came into Verizon and then when we did the Oath deal, Verizon had a strategy around Go90, some partnerships with Hearst, own 50% of Complex. And what we've done now is basically integrated all those strategies together and we're working through that right now, which is Go90's got hundreds of pieces of content and many of them are award-winning content. How do we put that against our distribution? How do we work with the Complex team? We also own part of Awesomeness TV. We have a portfolio of assets that is we have oath but then we also have the go 90 all the way through complex as other assets the company's involved with and our job right now is to mission control bring those assets into the biggest power positions we can for distribution for monetization for membership those are things that we're really focused on so i think in the future you're going to see us with a very connected strategy at Verizon, but more importantly, a very connected strategy about how we go to market with all of our assets. Mm -hmm. As an integrated approach. Integrated approach, yeah. yes. And the landscape around Verizon is shifting tremendously right now, yeah. right? So at and trying to buy Time Warner. Obviously, Comcast is trying to buy Sky, has NBC already. Disney's trying to buy Fox. Discovery's trying to buy Scripps. Many, many more examples of that. So what else? Just why don't you give no, us your no, list? No, no, no. I don't want to keep going. Just, just read me your list. Those are the announcements. No, keep going. Keep going. You're about to go there. Just keep, keep going. <laughs> Can't trip me up on my own podcast. Because <laughs> Verizon have a substantive enough asset base or strategy in media, which does have to get much bigger given the landscape around us. Yeah, well, I would connect it to the 5G strategy. If you came to Planet Earth today, it was your first day, and you said there's a mobile company that also has a billion internet consumers and is second or third largest mobile media company in the United States, which Oath is. 
you'd say, wow, this company has the assets they need to be successful. If you zoomed out and looked at the landscape, you'd still say, wow, Verizon is a powerful multi-hundred billion dollar company that's got this giant internet asset and mobile asset attached to it. There's a huge amount of runway for us just to execute the bold strategy Verizon took with Oath. So there's a lot of runway there. I think the industry's shifting landscape outside of Verizon. I wonder if we look backwards five years from now, And we said, which path should someone have taken, which is the digital path and mobile path, the linear path? I think that Lowell's strategy at Verizon over a multiple year period, when you see the shifting that's happening in the economics, in the media and communications and ads world and subscription world, it's a very smart play. And I'll leave it up to Lowell and the board at Verizon to determine whether or not they need more things or less things in the future. But it's a very robust asset base we have. And with 5G coming, it looks a lot more robust. People forget about when they talk about Verizon and Oath, they forget that 5G is on the horizon also. So if you took all of our assets and empowered it with 5G, that's another big tailwind that's going to benefit both companies. Interesting. And then let's talk about the ad tech space. Yes. It's obviously your expertise, you know, technology and advertising, but it's a pretty fragmented world out there for ad tech. I mean, how does Oath and Verizon get to be a leader in the ad tech area? Yeah, ad tech is an area that I would say unsustainable in its current construct. Too many companies adding too little marginal value overall. So I think you're going to see constant consolidation there. And I think second of all is there's an issue in advertising right now, which is, you know, when you watch TV ads and you'll see the same commercial in the same pod, in the same show overall, that's a broken experience. When you go to the internet, you have the same type of broken experience. The uh, internet advertising is in a position right now where it's really poorly done for the most part. And there's two ways to think about it. It's really poorly done. It's not going to get better. And it's not a great thing to go pursue in the future. The other way to think about it is really poorly done. There's billions of ads and or trillions of ads going to billions of consumers. If you improve that, there's probably an unbelievably great future there. And what we're planning on is improving that side of the business. But I'd say ad tech is in need of consolidation or a real change in the number of companies there. I think there's a a lot of questionable valuations in that space still overall. And the second piece is the ads experience with consumers is a very significant opportunity. We set a very low bar for the industry right now. Programmatic advertising, the technology's gotten in front of the consumer experience and it needs to go back behind the consumer experience. And that's a big opportunity. It's a big problem, but it's a big opportunity. And you're focused on that? Very focused on it, yeah. And how about other areas of um, digital media? Because you have scale right now in your business. It's a scale game. The digital media area have a lot of great companies that are growing very quickly, but very small these days. And there's been a bit of a softness in the value of some of these digital media companies. Is the game over for digital media or... Is that an opportunity for you to pick up some of the assets? First of all, content media is very important to consumers. The second thing is the great thing is that consumers are willing to pay for it now also. So I think whether you're a scale player or non-scale player, there's models you can go to to be successful. The place you can't go is in the middle. If you're caught between advertising and subscription, you're probably not in a great spot. So I think you need to kind of pick your monetization path and go there. I think from a opportunity standpoint, there's very few companies on the planet that can offer what we do, which is high scale distribution, high quality area for your content, 
high quality monetization. So I, I like where we sit in the ecosystem now. We're signing up tons of partners right now. We may do M&A. I know you probably want to hear say we're going to do a lot of M&A, but we're strategy first. And our strategy is get the strategy done. And whether that's through partnerships, M&A or other things, I, I'd say right now we're very focused on execution of our core strategy before we go look at other assets and pick things up. Got it. And how about on the sports side? Yahoo Sports seems like it could be a big opportunity. You mentioned Yahoo Finance before, but there's esports, there's betting, there are other areas that Yahoo Sports could continue to grow into. What's your strategy there? Yeah, uh, strategy on sports is the following is you saw we did the NFL deal, we did an NBA deal, we have some soccer deals or football deals that we've been doing on a global basis. You'll see us take the Yahoo Sports asset and move it more towards live sports live look-ins and you'll really see us play a much deeper role I, i'd say in terms of being you know really a member of sports i mean we have a lot of people playing fantasy sports that are registered with us they're on the app all the time or on the desktop and i think what you'll see from us is getting deeper into sports if you look at our strategy overall we don't want to be a mile wide inch deep that's not our strategy we want to start to get really deep with consumers things like betting and that's a legal question right now not a strategy question i think you'll see us really go a lot deeper into the what i'll call the fanatical sports and the relationships with sports fans mm -hmm. well tim how different is your role right now because you were ceo of a public company at AOL. you had a republic board your shareholders and obviously a full management team that relied on you. You still have a management team. And as the CEO of a public company, that's when we were negotiating with each other down the Verizon AOL deal. But now you have a big remit. You have a big set of assets that you oversee and you manage, and a lot of people still. But you're effectively a division of a public company that's obviously yeah. much larger. How is that different for you? And are you comfortable with that? I have career advice I always give to people, but I start by giving it to myself, which is every chair you're in is infinite. I walk around and I see what's happening at Verizon. I see what's happening at Oath. There's days where my role is not being the leader of Oath or being a leader at the Verizon executive level. It's being a talent recruiter or something else. I enjoy every aspect of my job. And I, I always say this to people is when I was 22 or 23, when I started the newspaper, I found something that I love to do. So I don't go through life in my career looking at whether or not I'm public or private or a CEO or a division head or those things. I go through my life basically saying, I love what I do. I, I want to make sure my real job is to make other people successful. And if I can do that from my chair and we can have an impact, I love what I'm doing. People expect you to say that you're not as happy or that you're not as passionate about if you're not running a public company, once you've been there, it's hard to not go back to that level. But it sounds like your philosophy is keep yourself at risk intellectually in your career, learn new things, and that drives your passion and your happiness. Well, I'll tell you a story. I'm a huge history reader. And when I was much younger, I read a book about D-Day, and I forget the name of the book. But in the book, they recounted how many people, soldiers and people supporting the war died on the boat trips over to the UK to plan for D-Day. And it was some outrageous numbers, like 20,000 or 30,000 people lost their lives just in boating accidents or storms. I remember reading that that day thinking, there's people stuck at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean who were fighting for freedom and fighting for the opportunity I have to show up at work every day. And who am I to complain about whether or not what my chair is and, and what role I have in those things? If I'm able to do what I love and work off of that platform of really being a free enterprise and free ability to use your talents and those things, I think about that a lot because people go into work and they want to fight other people at work or they want to, this is mine, that's yours, my team does this, your team does that. And I think if you zoom back a little bit, you'd say, look, I have a limited time on planet earth. 
I want to make an impact. I want to work with great people and have relationships. You know, by the way, I didn't die in D-Day trying to protect all the rights and freedom and everything else that, that we enjoy in this country and people around the world enjoy to other countries, especially involved in that conflict. So I, I try to take a step back and sort of realize that like my job, my time here should be productively spent. And I feel lucky to be here, frankly. That is a great story. You like that? I mean, that's yeah, true. Yeah, it's a great story. I may be able to help you on your negotiating skills <laughs> for your career, but, but that's a great story. <laughs> <laughs> what would your life said if you were negotiating? No, no, no. I think, I, think, I think that is great. I think about that as well because I'm a first-generation American. I know how much it took for my family to get here. So you have to just appreciate the yeah. journey. And then I think you're right. The arc of life is such that we're only here for a speck of time. So you may as well just enjoy it and just leave yeah. it. And, you know, you want to excel all the time, right? We're yeah. all competitive, but you don't want to be wasteful about things. I grew up in a household where, you know, my parents didn't come from a lot. We didn't have a lot growing up. But, you know, my dad served in Vietnam and he got injured. He did two tours in Vietnam. He got injured. He was on a PT boat, like Apocalypse Now, basically dropping off long-range Marines. And in one of the boardings they did of another boat, he injured his back and it bothered him his whole life. So I, I look at my dad who did that level of service, affected him his whole life, you know, those things. And that's a constant reminder to me, kind of like the people who, you know, didn't make it to D-Day. You could be off doing something like that. My dad is the person I look up to most in the world. Not doing a good job at work or fighting with people at work is a disservice to him. You are a history buff, you said. So what else do you like to read? So I'm fairly well read on U.S. history and world history, probably from the late 1600s through the early 20th century. And I, I don't know why. I just like that. And I've learned a lot of leadership lessons from that reading. I think one of the amazing lessons were things like really when you look at the Revolutionary War, and I grew up in Littleton, Massachusetts, which is about 15 minutes away from the Old North Bridge. So every year at school, they used to make us go to the Old North Bridge and they do a reenactment between the British and the U.S. soldiers. And there's some really basic stuff. One of the things was the revolutionaries used to stand behind trees and stone walls and those things. And, and the British used to march down the field with their red jackets on. And so as a kid, every time they did a reenactment, you say, why are the British walking down the middle of the field? You know, why don't they hide behind the trees and the stone wall. And they're like, well, that's the way war was done. And I remember thinking back then, they should have changed their strategy. You know, they had a strategy problem. And the other piece was just how the generals behave. When you look at, you know, General Howe in New York, when they could have crushed the rebellion, there was a battle up in the northern Hudson River. And General Howe got asked to sail his ships up the Hudson River to crush the final pieces of the rebellion. And he didn't do it because he thought he wouldn't get credit for it. He turned around and sailed down to Baltimore to try to take over Washington, D.C. And you think about world history changing because somebody wanted credit for something. My guess is, by the way, if General Howe had gone up the Hudson River and actually backed up his forces and taken down the rebellion, world history would have changed, number one. Number two is he would have had a better legacy. Instead, he jumped in his boats and took 10,000 people and sailed down to Washington, D.C. And it was one of the turning points that actually allowed the revolution to keep going. So I give that talk to my leaders all the time where I say, hey, you know, one general in our team can have a significant, you know, if you're looking out for yourself more than you're looking out for the, the war we're fighting, you may change world history here. I mean, I don't, I don't want to get too uh, hyperbolic, but let's make sure we're making the decisions for the right reasons. There's a lot of lessons in leadership from that reading I've done and not to go on. But the, the second thing I do is I, I have thinking time on my schedule. You and I have talked about yeah, this before. I do too. But uh, I it have, always gets uh, 
overridden by a meeting, but, right, yeah. right. but it's on my schedule. It's on your schedule. It's on my schedule, and I, I try to hold it. But in those areas, I'll take a topic for you know either weeks at a time, or depending on what the topic is, you know, I'll study it. So I, I treat it like school or an academic area where I start from scratch and I try to learn it. And not only do I learn it, I'll read lots of things about it or listen to people. I also think about it. I think taking time to think, which you, you know, I know you do a lot of, I do a lot of, that's a really important skill set. Almost everything in life teaches you not to think and being able to take your foot off the treadmill for a minute and actually deeply think about one subject and really get yourself straight on it. I think that's a big part of leading is if you're not straight, I call it the first 5% of strategy. If you don't have the first 5% of strategy nailed down, the next 95% of that strategy, you may be heading in the wrong direction. So I, I think from doing a lot of that history reading and thinking about how leaders think and thinking about how they behave kind of led me down the path to say, hey, thinking is a super important attribute for a leader and you've got to spend time on it. And so I, I try to spend as much time as I can on it. So I do it at work sometimes. It looks like I'm not doing anything. I tell people, I'm like, I'm going to be over here. It looks like I'm not doing anything, but I'm thinking. <laughs> and uh, I, I think they might question that. But. I have a similar uh, philosophy of block time for thinking or maybe walking around the park a little yeah. bit. And I also, to your point of history, I'm in the middle of a, like a quasi-class that I've created with a few people to learn from the leaders of modern history all the way back from biblical times that tackle a certain topic, whether it's failing and then succeeding or it's trailblazing or it's self-correcting, like this book on Grant that Ron yeah, Turner yeah, wrote, yeah. is all about his life as a leader in the middle of a bunch of self-correction while he's leading yep. in the United States and also personally. And so we're big on those themes as well as we're we're trying to learn from him as well to be mean, better leaders. Grand is a great example. You know, a couple of years before his president was working in his uh, family's tax shop, had basically been a complete failure at almost everything he did. And he basically pulled himself back into times change. So history was on his side. But, you know, that's one of the best leadership stories. And he had a lot of personal challenges mm -hmm. himself, but he also had a lot of fortitude. He's an amazing character. So we just finished the Winter Olympics recently, and you are a trustee on the Olympic and Paralympic Committee. 10 years from now, 2028, will be in Los Angeles for the Olympics, which is thought to be the first digital Olympic game. So what happens 10 years from now in our world of media and technology and set the stage for us of where we're sitting in LA for the first digital Olympics and what the world looks like? Everything I'm about to answer, by the way, I'm on the foundation board, which uh, raises money for athletes, which I'm very enthusiastic about. So what I'm about to answer is nothing to do with the U.S. Olympic Committee's plans on <laughs> media rights or uh, other things. But I would say that the opportunity in the Olympics is, you know, when the Olympics are on, you see people's passion around them. And even if you look at this past Winter Olympics... You look at countries like Norway and the impact they have and the pride they have. Can you imagine being Norway competing against the world superpowers and basically coming out where they came out in medals? It's an inspiring story for them. But there's also a lot of other inspiring stories. And I think one of the things that I hope the Olympics in 2020s will do is to let fans connect much, much deeper and more. I think the direct-to-consumer move in media and content and fandom is really important. You know, we get the opportunity to have a lot of Olympic athletes come into our offices and get interviewed. And the stories behind those athletes 
is amazing. You know, the stuff that they covered with Lindsey Vaughn this time about her injuries, and I think the New York Times did a great piece of content on it. NBC did a great piece of content. You don't realize when you meet these athletes of the level of effort, injury, lifestyle choices they've made. And if you go through all of the athletes, you may go through a country that we may not know the athletes, but somebody young in that country, you know, that could be a game-changing content moment for them overall. So I hope the Olympics in 2020s will take the content 20 layers deeper than it is today. The second thing I would say is the athletes in the U.S. at least are self-funded for the most part. There's foundations and the money that we help raise. But I think also there's communities that don't get connected to the athletes early enough so you can follow their stories. So I hope between now and, you know, the future Olympics, digital brings the fans much closer to the athletes. The Olympics are one of the rare things that touch many, many countries put out an even playing field and it's inspirational. There's nothing more inspirational. Forget what country they're from as an athlete performing at the top level. And you, you realize these people train their whole lives and they may have two minutes to show their craft. Think about how many mistakes, you know, you and I, I know you don't make any mistakes. I make a lot, but no, no, we're you know, there together. You know, it'd be an amazing digital experience if we can bring the fans much closer. But how about Verizon 10 years from now? What does Verizon look like? I think Verizon will be the fastest 5G network and hopefully by then it'll be 7G or 8G overall. You know, the thing I've been most impressed about with Verizon is the level of long-term operational ability, strategic ability, and thoughtfulness. Like Lowell, as I work for Rick Scott, the governor of Florida, I work with Larry and Sergey, work with Jeff Bukes. I mean, I've worked with a lot of the really well-known leaders. You know, Lowell is a humble, quiet leader, but forceful. He has a real vision 10 years out in the future. Lowell's legacy will probably be playing out in 5G and in media and those things. So I think Verizon's got a very good track record of doing very big operational things at very big scale. And I think that there's a real path way there right now for them to do that. So I think that'll be the legacy. What's the best business advice you've ever gotten? The best business advice I've ever gotten? You know, this is it. Everyone always tells you that you should admit when there are things that you don't know. And that's a conventional piece of advice people have. Someone once told me a long time ago, no, 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 no. Uh, because then you're just leaving the situation without an answer. You should prepare enough to never have to say you don't know. Wow. Yeah. And so you can walk into the situation anticipating the questions as much as you can. And it actually corresponds a little bit with what John Malone once said was his biggest the advice that he received, which was actually Talmudic, which was always ask the question, why not? So if you can plug the downside, if you could prepare enough to know the answers to the questions before they're asked, that's better than being honest enough to say, I don't know which is obviously, of course, important. Yeah. You don't want to say you know something you don't know. But there's a, the step before that is to prepare enough that you never have to put yourself in that position. That's really good. Well, well, well thank you. You look surprised. No, that's, that's really thoughtful. What about you? What's the best advice uh, you got? I don't know. I've gotten a lot of advice. From Rick Scott, who's the governor of Florida now, me, a guy named Todd Featherling, Rick and I went out. We bought a company called America's Health Network, and we were going into the internet digital space. We ended up selling the company to News Corp, to Rupert Murdoch and Chase Carey. I went with the company for just a couple of weeks into News Corp, but I wanted to back off and do more entrepreneurial stuff. And I called Rick, and I thought Rick was going to be upset that we just did this transaction, and I wanted to go off and do other things. But Rick said to me on the phone, hey, if this is what you want to do and you're really passionate about it, go for it. 
support. If there's anything I can do in the future to be helpful for you, I'll be helpful. It was just a real lesson that as a leader, treating people well and also getting behind people who wanted to go do things in general. So I, I would just say that was a micro moment of something when I was younger in my career, I thought somebody who was really successful like that would be more forceful or want me to go do different stuff in general. And he was super empathetic and also excited for what I wanted to do. And I realized that as a leader, that's one of the things that you can bring to other people is excitement and get behind them and support. those things to support. Yeah. And small lesson, small phone call, but big long-term impact. That's great. Tim, thank you very much for joining us on a Friday afternoon. Enjoy the weekend. Great to have you. And congrats on all the success and all the work you've been doing in deals and the culture here. we got my friend Betsy here next to me. And it's good to see friends at Lion Tree. Thank you very much, Tim. Appreciate it. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen. Feel free to leave a review there as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at KindredCast for behind-the-scenes photos and info. Keep listening and see you next time. Audiation.